Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, right here on your community radio station. We're Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville. We broadcast from here in the historic Habern Building at 106.5 FM, and we live stream anywhere you are in the world with an internet signal. You can listen to us live at forwardradio.org. We also want you to go there to become a part of this station because it's radio for the people, by the people. We want your voices behind these microphones. We want your passions behind Behind this station so you can volunteer for us at forwardradio.org uh, just click participate and you can also chip in a few bucks to help keep us on the air this is listener sponsored radio your donations keep us broadcasting and it's totally affordable at $20 a day what a bargain for a great community resource like this so support us at forwardradio.org my name is Justin Mugg and here on sustainability now I love getting new friends in the studio with me and it is so fun post pandemic and vaccines it's not post-pandemic. I should not say that. People keep saying that. We're still in pandemic. Post-vaccination, it's nice to have people in person here in the studio with me. And I've got two new friends I'm really excited to learn more about. They are both med students at the University of Louisville. I don't get to speak to enough med students at UofL. I'm the sustainability coordinator for the whole university, and yet the med school is still kind of a black box for me. So I'm, I'm excited to learn more about what they do and what their interests are. Uh, a second-year med student here with us is Zoha Mia. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Zoa. Thank you. And uh, she's also, I should mention, an advocacy research intern right now with the Louisville Community Grocery, mm-hmm. which is a proud underwriter of us here at Forward Radio. Also in the studio is uh, Onu Udo. Did mm-hmm. I pronounce your name right? I'm sorry. Yes, I should yes. have confirmed that. Onu is a third-year med student here at UofL. And what we're going to talk about today is an initiative they've started called Grow 502, which is really focused on health disparities in our community and why that's important, what what med students learn about health disparities, and why that needs to shape uh, what we do uh, when we talk about medicine in our community, right? Uh, so welcome to Sustainability Now, y'all. It's great to have you here. I know it took some rescheduling, and I'm glad we're finally getting it together. Um, but Grow 502 started just this past some spring semester, right? Yep. And uh, it's it's not just the two of you, right? No. So, I mean, it's going to look a little different going into the future, but it originally started in the spring semester of 20. Well, technically, we started planning in the fall mm-hmm. of 2020, but it kicked off in the spring of 2021. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, that being said, yeah, we basically came together. I think the original team was four students, um, nice. all medical students, and an undergrad student um, named Cheetah Mokeke. We all came together to just kind of carry out a vision. You know, we all are passionate about health disparities and addressing those in some form. Um, so we decided to come together, create a plan and carry it out. And, and it's really about learning more about health disparities and sharing that information with the public, right? Or with mostly with others in the med school? Right. So what we really wanted to, like, keep at the forefront was that this is not just for medical students. We really wanted to bring the entire community together, whether you're a public health student, a law student, med student, a doctor, a teacher, just like an average citizen in the community. The whole point was to bring everyone together to discuss these topics. And I think the way that we structured what we did was in in a way to, you know, 
if you're not interested in the advocacy aspect of something, for example, you can do the community aspect, and if you're not interested in the community aspect, you can do the educational aspect. So it was really designed in a way that whatever you're passionate about, in some way or another, you can get involved in trying to combat the health disparities that exist. Yeah, yeah. and if people want to learn more, play along at home, you can go to growthenumbers502.org to learn more. And I assume, well, tell me, you're saying it's going to look different in the future. So will there be more of this public programming going forward that people can look for? there yeah definitely what when i say it's going to look um, different in the future is um we started off in the pandemic yeah and with that being said <laughs> uh, a lot of our events and how we you know structured everything was based off an online environment um trying to interact with people through zoom and it was it wasn't how it was supposed to right be obviously with the vision. Yeah. so this year with that in mind you know now we know we've you know you're gonna take the best you can get out of that situation and all those different um virtual models can still be applied however it's it's time to get back into the community oh, I think nice. been, i'm excited about <laughs> your direction already <laughs> yeah we've been closed up indoors for quite a bit so getting into the spaces really talking to people and really getting you know showing the community that hey like we care we're yeah. here we just didn't know yeah. and now with everything that happened in 2020 you can't say you don't know anymore mm. you know so it's, it's yeah. awesome does that mean that some of this programming then is going to be out of the med school in the community? That's the goal. Yeah. yeah, we would love to interact more with our community members. And we actually just like met last week or this past week just to discuss that and what that's going to look like. Um, so we can talk more about that. But basically, we just really hope to connect with our community members, organizations, and really just develop a like long term sustainable relationship where, you know, they can rely on us and we can also help them in the best way that's possible. Excellent. Yeah. This is exciting. Well, mm -hmm. well, let's talk about what med school is like. I mean, everybody knows that it's super fast packed, so much you got to learn. Mm -hmm. Where does health disparities come into that conversation? Do people maybe come in with some background? In, I mean, I assume people go into med school maybe with some kind of background in public health, for instance, or what's your experience and, and your colleagues, your peers there? So I think it just depends on who you are, yeah. Um, and that's what medical school is about. You know, when the, the process again in medical school, there is no um, kind of cookie cutter medical student when you're applying. Yeah. Basically, they are looking for any interest, anything that's unique, and definitely because there are so many issues when it comes to um, health justice and health disparities. Students who come from that background. Um, have a little bit of, a, I guess, a leg up when it comes to knowing, understanding those concepts. But medical school is a place to learn that and to kind of like awaken that knowledge that, hey, these do exist and this is kind of how it shows scientifically, but this is also how it shows within the community and more of like a social standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I think the school has made, you know, I think more attempts in the past year to try to bring about that knowledge in its students and try to, you know, give everyone that knowledge of like disparities exist. And that's why we're here. Like, so, for example, they've done a lot of different lectures on like the racist history um, of medicine. And we talk a lot about like LGBTQ healthcare and yes. the importance of that. Um, but I think ultimately, the more you know, the more you expose yourself, the more you're involved with it, like the more your knowledge is going to increase. And I think, you know, those are good things that the university is doing, like they're good initiatives. But at the end of the day, like it's not enough. It's not going to be enough. I think for any institution, not just U of L School mm -hmm. of Medicine, I think any institution should always do better to promote those ideas of like social justice. So I think with Grow 502, we wanted to, you know, expand 
what we're already talking about to the student body and like whatever you're passionate about hopefully you can learn more through this program um, and if you don't know much about it then you can learn more um, but I think in general the school you know is trying to push those ideals but I think ultimately if until you're like really thrown in it and exposed to it then that's when you learn the most so it's not like everybody's going through a class in, in med school called health disparities or something like that uh, but it sounds like maybe it's a topic that does get woven into i don't know clinical practice i mean tell me how it looks for you all so yeah i can like give an example um of my fall semester of second year where we had, um, we were in our cardiology block, so that for medicine for us is kind of structured that you study different systems for a different set of parts weeks. of the body, not the parts of the society, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and we had a lecture about cardiology, um, a cardiology lecture where we were talking about blood pressures. Okay. And um, basically, some of the science that was presented about blood pressure um, didn't actually include a very diverse set of um, po population. So really, it didn't reflect accurate science because you tested this on mostly, you know, white males of a certain um, This is so important, right? Every time right. I go to the doctor for my physical, they always tell me, you know, to run all these tests, right? Mm -hmm. And they're always saying, well, this is the quote-unquote normal range. And I always mm -hmm. think, well, does that mean normal for me as a middle-aged white guy? Or is that like mm -hmm. we're applying the same standard to everybody? And mm -hmm. it, right. it, it sounds like what you're saying is maybe that's the problem. Well, it's a part of the problem. And, and there's something that, like, we all know, which is called called um, glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, which just reflects your kidney function. Uh -huh. And there happens to be, and you know, today, there's a corrected value if you're an African-American or black, um, just black identity, and then there's a value if you're non-black. And the science behind that has actually been disputed. There, it's some people holding on to the old, uh -huh. um, old style of using that. Some people are trying to find new ways. But that's kind of what she was mentioning. That those are things we we do learn about in school. That there are some racist and racism tied into medicine that are still present this day. But it's hard to kind of make that change because people are. Um, People are really, don't want to change. I'm not sure what the reason behind it, but they just don't want to change. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think these are all, like, obviously, you know, they're very systemic, these issues. So it's not just going to happen overnight. But, you know, there have been initiatives done, I think, just general by the me general, like, medical student body. Okay. Um, so, like, recently, I know there's been a big push for, for example, when we learn a different derm dermatology conditions, a lot of times you see those conditions presented on white skin. Right. But the problem is that they don't look similar on other individuals with darker skin tone. So there's been a lot of push to, you know, include more of those images so that it's a more inclusive learning experience of those same like derm conditions on people of color. Yeah. Um, and I know on Instagram, there was recently an Instagram page made called Brown Skin Matters. Oh, wow. um, and on that Instagram page, there's been like individuals, medical students, residents, doctors posting different like skin conditions, but on darker skin tone. So that you can see like, for example, what seboric dermatitis looks like on darker skin right. compared to lighter skin. Um, so I think in that way, like there are things being done, um, but of course those things will change over time and like Ona was mentioning how they talked about the corrected value I know some some of my lectures they were like oh like we're talking about um like kidney disease but it is higher in like yeah. the Latino or black African-American population compared to the white so those things are thrown in there but 
again, as I said before, like you could always use more exposure and more oh, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I love how we're complicating this already because I came in thinking mostly about like health disparities in terms of the health outcomes. Mm-hmm. But we're almost talking here about like disparities in the way we treat mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way we educate future doctors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the disparities in the system's ability to handle people from different backgrounds. And again, you mentioned right off the top, we're not talk, just talking about race here. Mm-hmm. Like, think about like trans health issues right. or LGBT. I mean, there's so many ways that this can present. And I'm, cert- I'm certain the religion, like faith mm-hmm. communities come into this, you know, when you're talking about like a a male doctor treating a woman that could be a huge Mm. issue in certain faith communities right Mm -hmm. so uh man it almost seems like you need two degrees to figure this (laughs) out (laughs) it's it's a lot no it is a lot and there is a difference and i do want to state there's a difference between health disparities and health care disparities yeah and i think that's kind of what you you were referencing yes i don't know the words for it but yeah (laughs) yeah but it really does come down to that like yeah there are different social determinant factors you know transportation environment um, access to clean water, which part of the environment. There's so many different factors that we are taught to learn. But there is the kind of the looking at a mirror type aspect of mm-hmm. healthcare disparities, where it's like, how are you bridging communication divides between you and your patient populations? Yes. How are you, um, you know, interacting with people who you've never interacted before? Let it be different identities such as LGBTQ, you know, refugee, all that stuff. And if you have, you know, maybe deficits in certain skill sets, to address those communities, in essence, you are doing a disservice to them because you can't treat their problem because exactly. you can't even just start a conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's deep. It's very deep. Yeah, and I think even adding on to that, there's just the inherent bias that we all have just from growing up in the system and growing up with the different factors that influence oh, our sure. bias as well. And I think also learning about your own biases that you have and working on tearing those down so that you can be a better provider and be a better physician is also something that you have to keep in mind as a medical student because so many of the healthcare disparities that we see is based so much around provider bias and the bias that they may have towards a certain ethnic group or racial group. So I think that's also something that we, I at least consistently try to like work on and think about it's like what bias could I have that I don't even realize that I have that could ultimately affect a patient's life and result in their death or something else yeah boy and you mentioned refugees that brings up language bias Mm -hmm. like even even as English to English speaker I feel like often my doctor is not speaking the same language as I am right but (laughs) I could just imagine coming into it as an English as a second language or someone with no English in our healthcare system in the U.S. it can be daunting right Mm-hmm. Um, just communicating with your doctor, but even getting that appointment in the first place, all the forms you got to right. fill out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, there are so many disparities. I'm glad I've got you here to pick your brains for 45 minutes because <laughs> this is big. I'm so excited to have two medical students from U of L here in the studio with me on sustainability now. Zoa Mian and Onu Odu. Uh, Udo, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to get it. Uh, and uh, they are, o- uh, Onu is a third year and Zoa is a second year, and they are part of Grow 502, this uh, student-led initiative, I think it's fair, fair to say that, right, uh, to, to tackle health disparities and address this within the School of Medicine, uh, and especially with our issues right here in the 502. So let's talk about health disparities that we know exist in Louisville and, and why you got so passionate about those. So I'm, I know, like, coming into my first year medical student, um, medical school as a student, 
I've lived in, lived in Louisville for, let's say, five years now. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't really expose you to different places and different things going on unless you're there. But when I got to um, campus, I was exposed to some of the gun violence and the kind of high right. rates that are present in um, the city. And working through um, the, the organization I was in at the time, I was the vice president of the American Medical Association. We hosted a gun violence prevention week, and I got exposed to so many different aspects of it. We got to do tourniquets. We got to learn how to actually treat patients. We got to learn about the disparities itself, um, the, all the statistics. We got exposed to um, just different workshops and modules all week about that. And going into Grow 502, we kind of followed the idea of using an extended period of time to discuss an issue, and that's where we we used the Grow 502 model to pick five different um, issues in our current um, city. Yeah. In, in, regard, in regards to like infant mortality, maternal mortality, we addressed lead poisoning, um, mental health, um, and ref- specifically like substance abuse. Um, we addressed diabetes and stroke. And I believe, I think I covered them all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, through that model, we kind of just like took a all-encompassing um, strategy to address like education advocacy community engagement and creative media to simply you know put the spotlight on health disparities and to start conversations and to start thinking of solutions and that was like our first try at it and it went really well and now we're kind of like you know you know restructuring thanks to the thanks to the post-vaccination um era we're in and really trying to like take those four pillars that we started off with but to the next level you know in the spaces that we want to address Wow. So you mentioned gun violence. Obviously, that's that's one of the many factors that adds up to the the I, I think it's fairly well known fact that your life expectancy in Louisville is tied to your zip code. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly gun violence and violence in general is not the only one. Right. Um, so what are some of the other most impactful health disparities in our city? Um, so one thing that I've been working on for the past years, I've been an intern at the Louisville Community Grocery, um, and for those listening, you know, in the West End, there's a huge, huge, just like disparity of food, um, food insecurity, just a lack of fresh grocery stores, I think, you know, per person, there's less grocery stores in the West End than there are in the East End. Um, And unfortunately, you know, that impacts people's health. Um, They can't get fresh, healthy foods. And um, Feed Louisville, um, they're an organization that's working there as well. Um, They did something called the Bok Choy Project, where they looked at, um, you know, the amount of bok choy, for example, that's present in the Kroger's in the West End compared to the East End. And they also... The same company, just different locations in town. Exactly. And they also looked at just the amount of fresh produce available while well, there was police presence just organic options and they found that there was just a significantly grossly limited amount of those fresh options in the west end compared to the east end at the mm. kroger's there wasn't bok choy at certain kroger's you know the more west of louisville that you mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. the less bok choy there was the less organic options vegetables that were rotting um there was police presence so i think all of those things just add 
on to already the other health disparities that exist. And, you know, if you have a patient and you're telling them, you know, make sure you're eating your fruits and vegetables yeah. every day, but they <laughs> Where do physically I get cannot get <laughs> fruits and vegetables, it's pointless to tell them that. On top of that, you know, some of them don't have a car, so they can't drive to oh, that sure. Kroger. And then it's just you get there and it's just rotting vegetables. Like that doesn't even sound appetizing. And I love vegetables and I would not want to pick up a rotting vegetable right. and go home and eat it. Or if your only options were canned or frozen. Exactly. It's not very exciting. So yeah. it's just a multifactorial thing that affects the health of patients and not just physically, but also stressed mentally of if my kid is hungry at home, am I going to go nearby and just get a bunch of food from McDonald's for cheap? Or am I going to travel all the way to this Kroger just to get mediocre food and then feed it to my family? Right. So I think that's also a big thing. And I think there's a lot of great initiatives that are there. There's a Louisville Community Grocery Black Market that are working on it. But, you know, it's a community. It's a community issue. And I think the whole community needs to get together to try to tackle that as well as all the other health disparities, you know, that exist. Well, talk more about the community grocery specifically. I'm, I've had some guests on to talk about it. But mm-hmm. um, how do you see it fitting into this problem that you've just laid out with it, the Bok Choy Project demonstrated, right? Right. So I think the really wonderf- wonderful thing about the Louisville Community Grocery is that it's community owned and it's a co-op. So ultimately, you know, for some amount of money, whether you're a student or a worker, you can pay some amount of money and have an ownership in this project, right? And, and then have a say. And yeah. have a say. Most importantly, have a say. And what happens, where the produce is coming from, the, you know, the produce comes from all local farmers and local growers, which is amazing. It doesn't go towards a huge corporation and incorporates all the people of color, the farmers, um, the, our black farmers, Latino farmers that kind of, you know, usually get left out when it comes to grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have a say of what happens. It's for the people, by the people. You know, it's like the radio, for the people, yeah, by the people. Yeah. Um, so in that way, you know, I think it's a really, really great initiative to try to tackle that problem. It'll be centered in the West End right. so people have um, access to it. And right now we're just having, you know, pop-ups and stuff like that to get more people involved. But ultimately, I think that's a really great way to tackle this problem. So, you know, if there's any issue regarding the grocery store, it'll come from the people directly. Like, yeah. they'll be the ones to step up and fix it yeah. for the people. It won't. You have to go through a hierarchy to talk to someone. It'll be none right. of that. It'll just be, you know, talking to your fellow co-owner. Well, and they're not just going to suddenly just decide one day, we're closing this store. We're going to concentrate our resources in the the Highlands or wherever, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Because it is based in the community and run by and for the community. Mm -hmm. And it's not a non-profit model, right? Like the store needs to make money, but Mm -hmm. it's not an extractive profit model where it's not about satisfying the needs of some investors from God knows where. It's about satisfying the actual physical mm-hmm. needs of the owners and the, the community that right. it's in, which is why, yeah, I'm so excited about Louisville Community Grocery too, which you can find. You can join. Anyone can join and become a member today. Help get the store open by getting more members at louisvillecommunitygrocery.com. Um, so what are you doing with them uh, as, a, as an intern right now? Um, so I... For Grow 502, I was director of advocacy. So advocacy is something that I've always been really, really passionate about and involved in for a number of different reasons. But I think I was just looking at different initiatives that were happening. I reached out to someone from there, and they were like, we have this research position. Um, If you want it, go for it. And I was like, for sure. Um, And so basically, I've just been researching different food justice movements in the country. Um, and then trying to come up with an initiative for the Louisville Community Grocery to try right. to, you know, get us on our feet and get us standing through advocacy, through right. advocacy.
advocacy initiatives. Um, so right now, you know, we're still figuring out the little things of what we're going to do, but um, ultimately it's probably going to be centered something around just, you know, putting zoning restrictions on the amount of, like, tobacco stores, e-cigarette stores, uh, liquor stores, stuff like that, dollar stores even. That's um, awesome. And try to center, you know, most of the traffic around the grocery, hopefully. Right. So. Because no matter how great it is, one store can't solve this problem, right? Yeah. Like, we, we need bigger uh, policy initiatives to help right. uh, sustain food justice in Louisville, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's not just about stores, too. Urban agriculture can right. play a role mm-hmm. and should play a role. Um, you know, gardening, those kinds of things can be ways... Uh, but, you know, we can't just expect everybody to grow their own food. You know, we also need to have a place where right. they can get fresh produce. And so I really honor you for that work with Louisville Thank Community you. Grocery. That's so that's so important. Um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about lead, this issue of lead poisoning, too. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, some people might not even think about lead anymore because they think, well, that was like an additive to gasoline in the 70s. But it's not an issue anymore. But it still is an issue in our city, right? Oh, of course. You know, like not everyone has the ability to build a brand new home um, in the current times. You know, people are buying homes and that's always going to be a thing in our society. But what people don't know sometimes is that if their home is, you know, older and was built in maybe before the 1960s, there is a good chance that the paint that was used to build your home has a lot of lead in it. And, you know, some typically people who have a, um, I guess, more advantages in our society and are able to have more income and their higher social SEC status, you know, they can think about those factors because, you know, they, they're not just going to use their money to buy anything. They have the abilities to, you know, be picky but when (laughs) you don't have those funds you know you don't have that ability you're gonna you need to have a home so you're going to get the best option in the current in the current city of louisville that happens to be um reflected in our west east division of the city where typically more of the homes in the west end are from that time period therefore higher levels of paint not only the uh, higher levels of lead in the paint but also higher levels of lead in the soil. Right. So they're Which being ex- gets to our urban ag and gardening question too, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And the Gene Snyder and the highways are right through those neighborhoods. So any lead that is in gas, it's going to rain down on the people who live in those spaces. Right. That's you know? a legacy, right, from the leaded gasoline days. It's still around. It's not in the air maybe, but it's mm-hmm. in right. our soils, right? right. Mm-hmm. And so there are ways to remediate this. There are ways to be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know that there's a lot of money behind like public campaigns to let people know about this or test your your soil for lead. Although I think a cooperative extension often provides free soil testing that will indicate if your soil does have lead in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a lot of people just don't know what to do. And, and I think in some cases there's an overreaction like, oh, my God, I got lead. I could never grow anything on my property. Well, that's not necessarily true. Uh, but there's a, a right way to do it and a, a, a more risky way to do it. Right. Uh, and it's a about actually ingesting the lead itself from the paint, the paint chips, mm-hmm. uh, or the lead in the soil itself. It's not that plants uptake it, so it's not like it's going to be in the middle of your tomato. But if the soil's on your tomato, you could be exposing yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then what? What should? What, how does the lead poisoning manifest itself? What does it look like in the community? Uh, it's it's kind of has a variety of like symptoms. You know, some people just stomach pain some people get headaches some people start to especially if you're a child you start to have um you know milestone like missing milestones you know not progressing and growing and the way you should yeah some people like can develop seizures some people start to have lung manifestations it really is 
truly a poison that just hits your body and it presents the way it does, you know, and it's, it is different. And that's one thing that's challenging for providers who, if you're not taking the, taking the time to understand where your patient comes from, yeah. you're not, you might not be asking the right questions. Yeah. And therefore, you wouldn't be able to pinpoint, oh, wait, this is looking like lead. Wait, where do you live? Where are you from? Uh-huh. Oh, how old is your house? Oh, <laughs> 1960s, 1950s? Yeah. Maybe we should think about you know, possible lead poisoning, order to test, and there you'll see it. Mm. But if you don't ask the right questions and you're not really... I guess, honestly, if you're not understanding your community and where people are coming from, you won't be able to understand that and be able to, you know, make that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Flint, Michigan disaster reminded us that lead is also in our pipes sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And I know that Louisville Water Company is doing a lot to remove lead, maybe all removed by now, from the actual mains. But that doesn't mean that the pipes connecting to your house or within your house or business or wherever don't have lead in them either. And that, that's the same issue, too, with older buildings from pre-60s kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there's, yeah, you need to test your your, your paint, your soil, and your, your pipes or your water coming out of the pipes to make sure you're avoiding that exposure. Uh, and, of course, this, this exposure is overrepresented in West Louisville, right? Uh, but that's certainly in the only chemical... Uh, of, of risk factor that, that folks in West Louisville are being exposed to. Uh, and, and this gets down to the question then of an environmental injustice in our community, right? You want to talk a little bit more about that more broadly beyond just lead? So when it comes to environmental injustice, you know, living, uh, my family lives in the East End, and one of the, I like to call it a privilege of living in the East End, is the amount of green space you have. Yeah. And the level, the quality and the levels of parks, you know, Cherokee Park, um, Thurman Hutchins. I mean, these are some of the most beautiful parks in our city that happen to all be on the East End. <laughs> and then when you look at the West End, and where are these green spaces? Where, where are the sidewalks for people to walk? Yeah. It's it's they're, they're not there you know and that it that doesn't impact the community because there's been studies that show that the more green space um, improves you know um, outcomes when it comes to diabetes and stroke because people are willing to walk outside if it's beautiful outside yeah. you have a sidewalk and especially our older population who you need an even sidewalk in order to feel safe and be able to get out in your spaces and that's on the east end we all know you will find that but on the west end it seems like we are not diverting our resources to give them those spaces so that they can have that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's also something that I recently learned about, which is like sound pollution. Yeah. Um, so oh, yeah. typically in the East End compared to the West End, there's less police presence, you know, less gun violence, less, um, I think, gang activity overall. And I was reading something about how, you know, and typically spaces in neighborhoods like those of the West End, there's increased police presence. So, you know, when you're trying to sleep at night and all you can hear is police sirens and just things happening outside. You know, I recently just worked um, at the pediatric outpatient clinic in downtown at the Novak Center. And so many patients talk about how, you know, they're trying to sleep at night, but they hear people fighting outside. You know, there's people jumping their fence, trying to steal things. Um, There's been drive-by shootings that happen in their neighborhoods and their family gets in the middle. So, you know, you can't even sleep properly at night when all that stress is happening around you. Mm -hmm. How can you sleep when you see blue sirens in your window Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. you hear the sirens going by back and forth or you hear someone getting arrested outside or someone shooting at one another. So I think that's also something that I don't think I thought about that much is I can go home and I can get a peaceful 
you know, sleep. I can sleep peacefully at night, knowing my family is safe, knowing yeah. that I'm safe. Um, I just probably hear the birds at most outside, <laughs> or my cat banging on the door. But I don't have to worry about all of this stuff that's going on outside. And I think that's also something that we don't think about, especially when it comes to things like mental health. You know, if you don't even feel safe walking outside your home or sleeping at night, you can't even sleep peacefully. Then how are you expected to? you know, function throughout the day and yeah. feel mentally healthy. So. And, and we know how that cascades to all kinds of health impacts, not, mm-hmm. sleeping, not right. sleeping well, right? Mm-hmm. I'm speaking today with a couple of medical students from the University of Louisville. You just heard from Zoa Mian, who's a second year, and we're also got in the studio Onu Udo, who's a third year. Uh, and we're talking about health disparities in Louisville and their Grow 502 initiative. You can learn more about it at grow, the number is 502.org. Um, and you know what else relates and got me thinking when you start talking about sound pollution is trees. So trees not only cl- clean and filter our air, but they also buffer sound mm-hmm. uh, when the leaves are on anyway. Uh, and, and we know that our West End communities have fewer trees, too. Right. Uh, and, of course, that also ties in then to the urban heat island effect, which means it's hotter in our downtown and our western communities that have fewer trees and that also has a cascading effect being exposed to that heat mm-hmm. of course a lot of people in homes with poor or no insulation or no air conditioning right all of that as ca- ca- a cascading effect that compounds these health disparities right right and i think we we this year has shown us that we cannot underplay the mental health side of things yeah and with these spaces and the lack of green green trees it's very subtle, you know. Mm. I don't think that's something that most people who, let's say, you grew up in the middle of Chicago, you're not, yeah, you're not worried about a bunch of green trees. Like that's just that's your environment that you've your baseline is that. Therefore, you know, differences aren't going to reflect. But here, it, as you drive through the city of Louisville, and you notice yeah. that we are blessed to have such beautiful landscapes. Yeah. I mean, I believe Cherokee Park was designed by the same person who designed Times Square or something like that. Central Park. Central in, Park, in exactly. New York, yep. So Olmstead, we have yeah. it. There, there is that the disparity itself is just that is where it's located. So yeah. when we go to the West End, we see like lack of trees. You see rundown businesses. People, you know, things that have been closed down. That all accumulates and impacts people. And their feeling of safety, their feeling of having a home, and yes, they may be, they may have become accustomed to it, but that doesn't mean that that's okay. You mm-hmm. know, like yes, they are all you know, they find a way to get through. They're enduring, but the fact that we're letting that happen means that we're fine to let that side of our community suffer while we continue to build more parks, more green spaces, you know, more sidewalks. You see bike lanes all over the East End. Like it's just. Mm-hmm growing because we are moving in that Mm. model where mental health and environment the environment matters but if that's not reflected across the entire community we're just creating a bigger divide and it's not gonna get any better yeah that gap is just continuing to grow and it's of course it's an economic and wealth gap too and we know that wealth is also tied to health obviously uh, so zip code doesn't necessarily determine everything. Let's talk about some of the populations in Louisville that may have health disparities independent of geography, right? Um, and I'm thinking especially about homeless populations and refugee populations, both of which our city has quite an abundance of. Uh, you know, we're a refugee resettlement community, right? Uh, so what are some of the disparities we see in, in those two populations here in Louisville? So I know at least um, with the homeless population, if you drive, I mean, for me at least, driving from the Highlands to school, we go under that bridge. Yeah. And there's just so many tents set up. Oh, yeah. All over that 
over that town. And I know recently um, there was an incident that happened where I think, you know, maybe it was LMPD. They went in and they just started ripping up people's tents and ripping yeah. up people's houses and just throwing everything in the trash. And then, you know, they had to be stopped at some point. And I think, you know, when it comes to something like that, at the end of the day, that's the only place that they can be and right. only place that they can survive and just to go and rip up their homes. I mean, where else are they supposed to go? We already have such an influx of homeless individuals living in Louisville. And then I always think when I'm driving by, I'm like, do they have access to health care? Mm-hmm. You know, they're so close by to all the hospitals. Right, they're, uh, ironically, but do they yeah. even know where to go? Do they feel like they can go? Right. Will they feel welcomed if they come? Or do they feel like there is a stigma that they yeah. feel like they can't go? And I think about that every single time that I drive past. And we're talking about, you know, environmental injustice recently in so many cities, not even Louisville, but every single city, they started putting dividers on benches. Sure. We call it like anti-homeless. Yeah. Anti-homeless landscaping and anti-homeless architecture. They'll put like spikes Mm -hmm. on the side of the sidewalk where homeless mm. individuals tend tend to sleep and i do want to say i think they're moving towards houselessness as yep, a term, that term instead is of becoming homeless. more common right yeah right so um i think just even the influx of anti-houseless or anti-homeless infrastructure in communities is also just a huge indicator of how much that health population mm. is not being supported and it just leads me to think of all the health disparities mm. that come with that not being able to go to a provider not knowing where to go not feeling welcome the stigma just the number of health problems that can build you know and that's probably not even at the forefront of their mind their forefront mm. it might just be where am i going to sleep tonight mm-hmm. what am i going to eat today yeah. what am i going to eat tomorrow where am i going to have my next shower mm. Just things like that. You know, they can't even, I would imagine, not even think that those are the things that are at the forefront. And in terms of refugee population, I know we were talking about language barriers. So in this past summer, you know, I have worked with a couple of families that are refugees. And I think there comes a number of trauma that comes with them being a refugee. Yeah, um, right. Not, They're fleeing in, in exactly, something, right? And not being <laughs> provided, you know, ample medical support, uh, mental health support partly because of the language barrier. Um, If you have some, a family come in and they need a translator on the phone, oftentimes so many of the things that we're trying to discuss as healthcare providers, like for example, I was talking to a family about a breast pump because the mother was breastfeeding. And it was, it took like 10 minutes just to try to get that point across is, are you using a breast pump? The mother had no idea really what I was talking about. And the translator kind of had a hard time translating that in a way that the mother could understand so when it comes to you know appointments taking two hours longer than they should you know you can't get that efficient health care you can't get the high quality health care if there's those gaps in communication and understanding ultimately that takes away from the health care quality that the patient should be receiving Um, and you know it's hard because there's so many different languages unfortunately you can't know all of them but at the same time that's not an excuse to give low quality health care right right so you still have to keep all of those things in mind and then the cultural aspects of it yeah um so it's not necessarily a language barrier it could be a cultural barrier like breast pump what 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 is that and why would i use that right so i think those are just a number of things that i've seen in terms of health care relating to those two populations but hopefully you know as we progress in society hopefully we can find better ways to address 
the issues faced by those communities. Mm -hmm. So are you all at the stage of residency yet, or is that the next stage for you all, right? But, But you're getting some clinical experience. And I'm just wondering what you've already witnessed in terms of both these health disparities and efforts by the medical community to address them or just acknowledge the fact that, you know, we need to do better here. What, what have you actually seen? Uh, I think I've had a couple experiences and language has definitely been a factor that I've been exposed to. Um, I was working with a Hispanic community at a pain management clinic and they were supposed to send over their medical records and that didn't happen. So therefore that that appointment was going to be the first time we're hearing all this information that we need to gather. However, right. because we didn't have a translator on site that day and we had issues with the translating services online, you know, they waited a very long time to be seen just to be told we can't do anything right now because we don't have enough information. Oh wow. Just to come back, you know, another time. And you think about like the population I was working with at the time, you know, they use TARC services sure. to get there. They have to schedule their appointments at a time. They're going to be there until they get picked up. So let's say three or four hours have been wasted on this appointment just to come back again. Oh, the exact same thing. So these little things, you know, oh, I can't see you today. And you come back another time may seem small. But <laughs> for them, that might be like two days worth of income. That might be, mm-hmm. you know, people sacrificing their jobs to take you to the appointments. And it's just these little things. And it's almost like a microaggression toward them as a patient. But, it's you know, we don't think about it because... You know, we are doctors. We have to move from the next patient, keep on moving because yeah. we serve such a huge population. But all of these little moments can lead to a patient not coming back for their needs because they don't want to go through that again mm. and suffering and then leading to even worse outcomes. Hmm. So it's just these little barriers that always keep coming up. And we're trying to address them. I know, like, there are more translator um, services for most um, for most hospitals. They teach us, hey, if you don't know what they're saying and you can't get consent do not proceed wait till you get translated wow so we're getting we're being taught that it's just that we need to keep up and make sure that when we do have these services available they're always ready to go because it just takes that one moment that one lapse where we can honestly um, permanently impact a patient's life you know yeah yeah uh, so technology is making some things a little easier on the translation side, it sounds like, but it's still a problem. And and that cultural piece is never going to get bridged. I mean, it almost sounds like the ideal scenario would be, in a lot of cases, to pair sort of a social work professional with a, with a medical professional to really serve these needs. Right. So as I stated before, I worked at the Novak Center in Louisville um, this past summer, and I witnessed a number of things that I think, you know, they're doing really well to try to address these issues. So I know you were saying about social worker. At the clinic, there's always one or two social workers on site, um, as well as lawyers that are working in the clinic. So if there's any sort of legal issue that comes up, they need help with anything, there's always a social worker or a lawyer there present. So, Can you give an example of a, that's legal? That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, what would that look like? Um, so, lawyers are typically there when it comes to CPS cases, like Child Protective Services. Right. Um, if there's any form of child neglect being shown, um, then they're there to get involved. Or um, if a patient comes in and there's some issue regarding, um, like, for example, with the COVID crisis, a lot of families felt like they weren't able to pay, like pay certain bills um, or get the help that they needed, that the government said that they 
would get, and so the lawyer would get involved to try to help them out, or if there's a refugee family that needs to be represented, um, a lawyer can get involved. Um, if social work is needed, um, for example, scheduling therapy yeah. um, for a child who's gone through trauma or abuse, they're always there. And then there's a number of other things. So we have a food pantry if you're a patient there and you really? need food. We have... Um, a page where you can mark off things that you need oh, um, wow. and it's also in Spanish so whatever you need you can come in and get it and you don't even have to have an appointment if you're oh, just wow. like I'm a patient here my kids a patient here I need something from the food pantry um, they'll get it we offer WIC which is for women and children who need things like diapers um, formula for breastfeeding things like that there's just a number of different things that that's just at the top of my head yeah. of what I can think of some of the services that they offer. Yeah. Um, and then if they need any sort of referrals for anything, then, you know, the doctors are always there and ready to refer them to wherever they need to go. Yeah. Um, so they have a good partnership with a number of different local or organizations like Boys and Girls Club, Centerstone, um, addiction facilities, stuff like that. Um, so they do a really good job of trying to, you know, take care of all of their patients and make sure that they're getting what they need. Well, that's so. that's encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> well, like taking a macro perspective on the issue, we have to remember that the American dream and what America stands for is that we are all immigrants in this melting pot, right? Mm -hmm. So that has to be reflected in all aspects of life. It can't yeah. just be the motto where it's reflected. It has right. to be in our systems, our right. policies. Right. So hospitals are moving in that direction where they're like, they realize... Okay, you know, I can't just have a pamphlet in English. I'm right. going to need it in Spanish. I might need it in multiple languages mm. because we advertise our country as a space where everyone can come and follow the American dream. But we have to make it a framework that it truly is, you know, present and yeah. actually works. Right. And I think that's, I really believe 2020 has, you know, shifted that, shifted the speed at, at, the, at which this is going. Because before then, you know, people were pulling a car like, I don't, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that I've heard over and over and over again, especially with Grow Up Pablo 2 and all the, all the things that we've done is that people say, I didn't know this was an issue. I didn't know. I didn't huh. know. Like, the resources were there. You could have yeah. found out. But that's another story <laughs> for another time. But that being said, now we can't pull that card anymore. That yeah. excuse doesn't work. So yeah. with the current status and the current way we're moving, things like that hopefully will become the norm and not just the exceptional care that's being provided by Novak. Instead, it's just like, mm -hmm. no, this is just what we do across all hospitals. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, I think for me, at least being in medical school has just realized like the human side of people, like at the end of the day, yeah. like this is a human being that I'm right. working with and that I'm treating. Right. Like this is not just like a patient with a disease. <laughs> this is a human who has like real lived experiences and real trauma. And, you know, that's something I have to keep in account when I'm treating them. Yeah. They're not just coming in for stomach pain. You know, all the other things that are happening in their lifestyle is influencing that stomach pain. And as their provider and their healer as a doctor, it's, you know, in my, I have to keep that in mind or else I won't be fulfilling my duty, you know? Yeah. So. Well, this has been wonderful. We're at the end of our time. I'm glad we ended on a fairly hopeful note. I'm feeling better about going to the doctor in the future <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds like um, at, at least there's some consciousness raising around health disparities and it's not insolvable, right? Um, and this is something that we can address even just within the way that medicine is practiced. And so I'm glad that UofL is starting to address it and that you too as, as students at UofL are, are doing so as well. So thank you so much uh, for, for doing this good work. Zoa Mian and Onu Udo uh, from the University of Louisville School of Medicine and Grow502. Uh, keep, keep track of them at grow502.org. Thank you both so much for coming in. 
Thank, Thank you. you for having us. All right. Stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a minute, your community action calendar with lots of ideas for how you can get engaged in sustainability this week right here on Forward Radio. Sustainability now with me, Justin Mogg, on your community radio station, Forward Radio, radio for the people, by the people. And it's time for you, the people, to get engaged in sustainability this week. So get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out. Get ready to take action this week. It all starts on Tuesday. In fact, every Tuesday through the end of August, it's the virtual wild and scenic Red River Fest every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on Zoom. The Kentucky Waterways Alliance invites you to join them for the virtual wild and scenic Red River Fest every Tuesday in July and August at 6 p.m. on Zoom, hosted by KWA's Red River Watershed Coordinator, Laura Gregory. Join from anywhere as KWA presents the fourth annual Red River Fest and its first time virtually with fun and informational topics about Red River, Kentucky. This year, we will have incredible presenters joining us virtually making this year's festival even more accessible each tuesday is a different topic and presenter and coming up this tuesday the 13th it's forest service projects and recreational opportunities on the red river presented by dbnf hydrologist mark cherry and dbnf backcountry ranger bradley davis Next week on the 20th, it'll be Leave No Trace, presented by Leave No Trace Adventures, Christy Abrams. Uh, it continues on throughout July and August, so uh, learn more about this free family-friendly event and register at kwalliance.org. That's Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on Zoom virtually every Tuesday in July and August. Learn more at kwalliance.org. Now, Wednesday, July 14th, uh, Bernheim is offering a midweek nature walk at 9 a.m. Summer mornings are often the coolest part of the day, and Bernheim is extra lovely in softer morning light. These hikes are led by Bernheim staff and volunteer naturalists each Wednesday, beginning July 14th and running through September 8th. Registration and payment are due by 4 p.m. on the day prior to the start of the program. So that's Tuesday at 4 p.m. Get on it! Get on it! You can call 502-955-8512 or learn more and register at Bernheim, B-E-R-N-H-E-I-M dot org. 
Now, coming up on Thursday, July 15th, it's a Sierra Club summer picnic with Louisville Community Grocery, a proud community partner and underwriter of us here at Forward Radio. Uh, the Louisville Community Grocery is committed to building a cooperatively owned grocery store that supports the local economy by providing healthy, affordable food through just and equitable practices, employment, and ownership. The grocery believes that everyone should have access to fresh and healthy food in a space that is welcoming to all. They also believe that access to healthy food is a human right, and our community's self-reliance in providing for our food needs is essential. First, full-service grocery stores have abandoned most of Louisville's west and central neighborhoods, and they hope to address this need through community ownership, job creation, and commitment to community health. Cassa Heron, an urban planner and with expertise in community engagement, facilitation, grant writing, policy development, and strategic planning, will inform and update us on the Louisville Community Grocery Project. Now, this event on Thursday the 15th might be virtual or it might be in person, depending on guidance from the National Sierra Club. So you should go to sierraclub.org slash greater Louisville group to register for a potential virtual Zoom picnic at 7 p.m. on the 15th. Or if they are able to meet in person, it will be held at the Louisville Nature Center from 6 to 8 p.m. You can find the final details posted at sierraclub.org slash greater Louisville group. Coming up this weekend, Saturday, July 17th at 10 a.m., the Kentucky Environmental Leadership Institute continues with its next session on gathering information on environmental concerns. The Kentucky Resources Council is proud to present this Kentucky Environmental Leadership Institute workshop for beginning environmental activists. This is the second in a series of sessions for community members who want to broaden their understanding of environmental justice and learn more about how to protect the places they live and love. This session will provide information on how to take advantage of the publicly available data collection tools, as well as how to interact with regulatory agencies with success. The speakers will be Michelle King, Executive Administrator and Director of Program Planning, and Sarah Lynn Cunningham, Executive Director of the Louisville Climate Action Network and an environmental activist for a half a century now. The final workshop in this series will be held on August 21st, and it's on advocating for environmental change. You can learn more and find the link to register for both of those at kyrc.org. It's the Kentucky Resources Council. You can find them at kyrc.org. Another interesting event happening. I'm sorry, it's at 10 a.m. as well on Saturday. You're going to have to choose uh, Saturday, July 17th. Oh, there's also one at 1 p.m. Maybe you'll be able to do both. It's uh, an, an interesting uh, activity at Locust Grove out at 561 Blankenbaker Lane. It's unfolding the story. The Enslaved at Locust Grove. Locust Grove is debuting a new free guided tour this month, and this 90-minute tour introduces guests to the Krogan family, an enslaved laundress, Louisa, and an enslaved distillery assistant named Alfred. Experience the other side of Locust Grove as you accompany the Krogan family through the house and outbuildings as they go about their daily routines. Get immersed in the year 1816 as you witness the sights, smells, and sounds 
of the 19th century farm, all while learning about the lives and stories of the enslaved people that actually kept the Locust Grove Plantation in operation. Instead of whitewashing our local history, this program covers the realities and truths of enslaved life in 19th century Kentucky. The tour is ongoing, offering offered the first and third Saturday of every month, so reserve your free tickets today at locustgrove.org. And again, it's Saturday, July 17th at either 10 a.m. or 1 p.m. out at Locust Grove on Blank and Baker Lane. Go to locustgrove.org for more info. And one more reminder, my friends, before I let you go, that uh, there is an online screening of a new documentary available. It's called The Other Side of the Hill, Rural Perspectives on Climate Change. It's available through Interfaith Power and Light. Their network is offering this through Sunday, July 25th. It's a unique opportunity to be among the first to share in the new film. And they encourage all Kentuckians to watch. And if you're part of a faith community, make a plan to share it with your congregations and members. Other Side of the Hill explores the impacts of a changing climate in rural eastern Oregon as seen through the eyes of local leaders on the ground. From innovative timber operations to large-scale solar, the film amplifies the voices of rural communities that are often left unheard and shines a light on stories of progress and hope. In a time of unprecedented cultural divide between rural and urban communities, we find common ground in an urgency to address a changing landscape. This 30-minute film is a hopeful, inspiring look at coming together, finding common ground, and new climate frameworks, and shining a light on rural voices as we envision a path forward. The film is available for free online viewing through July 25th, and you can register right now. Watch the trailer, sign up for an Interfaith Power and Light screening kit, or just register to watch the film at interfaithpowerandlight.org slash movie hyphen series. That's interfaithpowerandlight.org slash movie hyphen series. And that's all that's on the calendar for this week. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to us here on Sustainability Now on Forward Radio. One last reminder that we rely entirely on your listener contributions to keep us on the air. So, hey, this is the week to support. Maybe you could sponsor an entire day's broadcast. It only costs $20 a day for this great community treasure. So almost anyone in our community could afford to be a day sponsor. And if 365 of you did that, we would have an entire year covered. So think how easy this is, my friends. Just go to forwardradio.org. Click donate. Give whatever you can today, $20 or more if you'd like. Uh, and also while you're there, think about volunteering. Uh, We've had some shows leave our broadcast schedule, and there's always room for you, whether you want to do music programming or cover news and community issues that aren't heard anywhere else on the radio dial. This is your new home for progressive thought, my friends. We want to provide radio for the people, and it has to be done by the people. This is all volunteer-powered, and you could be one of those volunteers. Or if you're a little shy about getting on the radio, maybe you want to support the station in another way. Hey, we need lots of help behind the scenes, especially with the uh, 
pandemic now under control in our community and all kinds of in-person events happening again, we would love to have you volunteering at a Forward Radio event or booth. And so you can go to forwardradio.org, click participate, and let us know what you'd like to do to help keep this station running. And that's all we've got time for here today on Sustainability Now. I look forward to being back in your ears again next week. Be well, my friends. Thank you.